Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church. Uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I graduated from Southern Seminary with a PhD in aesthetic theology with the intention of being some sort of professor. Uh, but God had another more beautiful plan. Uh, Casey and I uh, moved into the parsonage here at Woodburn, became your pastor 20 years ago on the first thing in August. Our son Wade was two years old, uh, which is just hard to believe. He was leaving boogers all over my office. And, uh, and, and now Wade, uh, Wade heads off to Southern Seminary on Thursday. It's, uh, it's uh, 20 years. It's amazing. Uh, I thank you so much for the privilege of being your pastor. I thank you for the last 20 years. Uh, if the Lord is willing and if you're willing, let's do 20 more and, and see how God will bless us because God has been so good, uh, so very, very good uh, to me uh, through you. And I can't thank you enough. I love you so much. Open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59. I want to start a new series this morning entitled Loaded Words. Loaded Words. We talked a lot about life on mission. I want to continue talking about life on mission, but let's be very, very specific about what that mission entails. We're not all called to preach, but we are called to tell. We're called to tell others about Jesus. That is your life's mission. That is your mission. One way or the other, you're going to use your life, use your words to tell others about Jesus. It requires conversation, not much else really. You don't have to give a long speech. You don't have to know a whole lot about the Bible. You just need to know Jesus and know what he's done for you. And you need to be willing to walk across the room and, and perhaps tell somebody what, what you know and what you've learned about Jesus, about the love of Jesus. It's, it's not more complicated than that. It requires conversation. It requires words, just words. Now, words work when we use the same words to mean the same things. A conversation works when we have a vocabulary that we share, and I say words, and you understand those words, and we attach the same meanings. Words fail, words fail when we use the same words, but we don't attach the same meanings to the same words. You understand? There was a young man who was from Great Britain who was on a first date with a young woman who was an American. They were leaving the restaurant and walking to the car, and she said to him, I like your pants. And he froze. He was mortified. He was completely embarrassed. He, he froze. He looked back at her. He looked around, and then he looked down and checked his zipper. He panicked. And he said, I, I'm sorry, I, I really don't understand why you would say that to me. And she said, I, I said it because I like your jeans. Okay, do you know what the problem was there? Do you know what the embarrassment, the shock was on his part? In Great Britain, when you say pants, it means underwear. <laughs> pants means underwear. So when she said, I like your pants, he's thinking, you know, what's, what's showing? You understand? They're using the same word, but they don't attach the same meaning to the same word. And we will always have problems in conversation when we use the same word, but attach different meanings. Now, the issue is, if we're going to go out into the world, live life on mission, and tell others about Jesus, we're going to have to use words. The problem is the words we use in church don't always mean the same thing when we go outside church, and we don't seem to understand that. We don't always seem to anticipate that the words we use and understand in church can have a very different meaning, a very different association can be attached to it for people who are outside the faith. 
So I want us to come back around to, to this vocabulary of evangelism, some of these words that we use, because they've become loaded words. And they can blow up in your face if you don't anticipate what happens when you use these words with people outside the church. So today, the word of the day is the S word, sin. It may be the most loaded word of all. Sin. Isaiah 59 is where we'll begin. Isaiah 59, beginning with verse 1. Listen. The Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Underline that line right there. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers and your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies and your mouth spews corruption. No one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and then give birth to sin. They hatch deadly snakes and weave spider's webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die. Whoever cracks them will hatch a viper. Their webs can't be made into clothing and nothing they do is productive. All their activity is filled with sin and violence is their trademark. Their feet run to do evil and they rush to commit murder. They think only about sinning. Misery and destruction always follow them. They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They've mapped out crooked roads and no one who follows them knows a moment's peace. But that was a long time ago, right? A lady named Peggy went to her granddaughter's high school graduation a while back. You know how they do now. The classes are large. And I always say, okay, please hold your applause until the very end. So mostly families aren't supposed to clap, you know, except the redneck families. Ah! When, when Bubba walks across the stage. But for the most part, we just sort of hold our applause now and wait, wait till the end. But Peggy was at her granddaughter's graduation and they were holding all their applause. But then uh, they, they called the name of a, a pretty girl with red hair who was big under her gown. And they called her name and she walked across the stage to get her diploma. And, and when they called her name and she headed across the stage, the whole auditorium began to applaud. And then everybody rose to their feet. They gave her a standing ovation. So Peggy leaned over to her daughter and said, who is that girl? What has she done? And she went over to Peggy and said, Mama, she's going to have a baby. Peggy, she's going to have a baby. 18, the girl less than 18 years old, unmarried, going to have a baby. She's going to have a baby. Peggy said, well, that can't be good for anybody. Why are we giving her a standing ovation? Her daughter leaned over and said, Mama, just hush. It happens all the time now. You ever feel like Peggy? In the world, you ever just feel like Peggy? I mean, I, I'm in, in no way trying to beat up now on, on uh, unwed pregnant girls, but a standing ovation? It, it, it's very difficult now for some of us to find our way. It's a very disorienting kind of world that we live in because the rules of what's right and wrong seem to be rewritten nearly on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's really kind of bewildering. And, and honestly, in, in the day and age and the culture in which we live, it's become next to impossible to speak of sin. 
nearly impossible to, to speak of, of sin. If you use the word sin, if you call something a sin, or if you speak of people being sinners, understand that's a very loaded word now. And so when you use that word in certain company, in certain public situations, that word's going to blow up in your face. And you just need to understand and anticipate that. That word will blow up in, in your face. If you call something sin or, or, or speak of sin or, or speak of people as being sinners, they will think that you are spewing hate. The, the world will accuse you of being some sort of bigot, some sort of hater. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you try to speak of sin now, you will be accused of being a horrible person. And it's strange because for the most part in church, being people of Jesus and people who truly understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we understand that. So when we speak of sin, we're not hating. We don't have hate in our hearts. Most of us truly don't. We're just trying to speak of something very, very true about our own lives and about the world around us. And if you take that word away, if we can no longer speak of sin, then understand it's a devastating sort of situation. It's not good for anybody if sin can't be called sin. It's not good for anybody because understand, if we can't speak of sin, then we can't speak of something fundamentally true about our lives, about human existence. Because sin is at the very, very foundation of who and what we are in this fallen world. You understand that? If we can't talk about sin, then we can't speak about the truth of our lives. If we can't speak about sin, we can't talk about forgiveness. And if we can't talk about forgiveness, we are eternally damned. Are you with me? If we can't talk about sin, we can't talk about anything that matters. It doesn't do anyone any good if sin can't be called sin. So one way or another, we have to recover. We have to recover this word. We have to know what it means when we say it, and we have to make sure that other people know what we mean when we say sin. So let's start right there. What exactly is sin? How would you d define it? Well, Isaiah 59 does a pretty good job. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. You see, people see what a mess the world is in. And if they're believers at all, if they have any sort of notion that there is a God, they typically want to blame God for the situation of the world. When terrorists drop a bomb or when some madman uh, pulls out a knife in public, people say, where is God? What's wrong with God? Why would God let this happen? We always turn it back on God. But Isaiah 59 puts the blame exactly where it belongs. It's not God's fault. God didn't create the world this way, and this is not the world that God intends. And just watch Fox News. There's a whole lot that happens in this world that God never chose. Understand? The brokenness, the fallenness of this world, it's not God's fault. We're not living in the world as God intends. We're living in the world that we have created by our sin. Verse 2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. 
The reason that we live in such a God-forsaken world is not that God has forsaken us, but we have forsaken God. We have turned away from God. It is our sins that cut us off from God. So understand, the, the gospel, which is our mission, the gospel, which is the message that we live to tell, the gospel is good news. But understand, the gospel is good news, but you have to hear the bad news first. Before it's good news, there's bad news. And the bad news is your sins have cut you off from God. We have to be able to understand the bad news first. You can't possibly understand the good news of a Savior until you understand the bad news that you need rescue. You need saving. The world needs saving. We have to have the language of sin. We have to be able to share the bad news first so that then we can tell people what the good news is. The bad news is the news about sin. Your sins have cut you off from God. So back to it. What exactly is sin? What do we mean by sin? Now, as pastor, when I'm sharing the gospel with children... If you study the, the development of faith in children, and if you understand sort of the stages of how a child progresses, it's interesting. This concept of personal sin is usually the last thing that snaps into place. So if you're trying to decide if your child is ready to receive Christ and understand, it's going to be this matter of sin. They have to be able to grasp this, this, this important, important fact of their own sin. You have to understand what the problem is before you can possibly receive the answer. The answer is Jesus. The problem is our sin. But very, very often with children, there's, a, there's this really simplistic notion that sin is just doing bad things. Sin is doing bad things. So for most of us, we continue with that sort of simplistic definition. Sin is just doing bad things. And absolutely, sin is doing bad things. But the sin that is in you and me, it goes much, much deeper than that. The problem isn't just that I'm a person who does bad things. I, I am a, a, a sinner. One way or the other, that sin is a power that I wrestle against and with. Sin is something that is in me. It comes out in my actions because it's, it's in me. It's already in me. So scripture doesn't just say that we do bad things. Scripture calls us sinners. To, to, to talk about sin is in one way or other to describe something at the very core. It, it, it's the contradiction at the very heart of myself. Sin. It's more than just doing bad things. Way back, the, the ancient church father, St. Augustine, all the way up through Martin Luther, they, they tried to talk about sin more in terms of, of our, our orientation in the world. It's not just doing bad things. It's, it's something of the way that we're wired as human beings. And the language that Augustine, Martin Luther used is this language of being turned in upon yourself. To be a sinner is to be turned in upon yourself. So picture maybe, a, maybe a, a baby in the womb, the way the baby is all turned in, or, or maybe picture a flower that, that is turned away from the sun and, and turned in toward itself. At the very heart of who I am, at the very heart of you, who you are, we are these beings, the, these sinners that, that are turned in upon ourselves. 
That that means I am turned in, I'm focused upon myself, my own identity, which I hardly ever understand. Do you understand? Turned in upon myself. Turned in upon myself, I'm incapable of really focusing on others or, or acknowledging the God who has made me. I am completely turned in, wrapped in upon myself. That means my own desires will, will rule me. My desires will determine everything about my, my life. It means that I'm very focused on my own feelings, which are never reliable, but with no outside point of reference, my own feelings will confuse and mislead me. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's to be turned in upon yourself, turned in upon your own heart. But the heart is deceitful above all else. I mean, this is what Scripture says. You can't be turned in upon yourself. You can't understand anything about the world. You can't know God. You can't even truly understand yourself if you're only looking at yourself. You will be trapped on, on the hamster wheel of your own confusion, your own desires, your, your own identity, whatever you feel like that is. Is this making any kind of sense? To be a sinner is to be turned in upon yourself. And there's nothing you can do about that. Turned in upon yourself, you're limited. You can't be the source of faith or hope or love. You're the source of nothing but confusion and feelings and all of the rest of the rot that comes out of your heart and mind. We're turned in upon ourselves. We're damned. For eternity. I mean, there is no salvation inside myself. That's why Paul says, who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from this body of death left to myself? I'm condemned. And this is the whole world that we live in. This describes everybody you know. Now, lots of people you know consider themselves good people. And that's part of the problem when we start talking about sin. Most people think of sin as simply doing bad things, but they don't feel particularly bad about anything they do. And so therefore, if sin is just limited to the definition of doing bad things, then understand, it's going to be very, very difficult to use that word. Because people don't necessarily think the things they do are bad. But sin is much deeper. It's much more profoundly serious than just doing bad things. It's your entire orientation in the world, and you are turned in upon yourself. And that self-focus, that self-limitation, that, 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 that self-determination is, is, is what dooms you. It's what makes you lost. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone into our own wicked way. Do you see that? We turn into our own way. It's that determination to be the God of your own life. It's the determination to do it your way. It's the determination to make your own choice. It's a determination to say, I was born this way, so leave me alone. I will be myself. Let, be me, let me be me. The problem is, if we let you be you, you will be for eternity condemned. You need rescue. You need something that will turn your focus away from yourself. Something that will make you stop looking for the answers to the questions inside your own self. Just listen to your heart, Pinocchio. Now what the cricket said, it's a bug, y'all. It's a bug. Don't listen to your heart. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lie to you. Your heart doesn't know anything more than your brain. 
You can't just listen to yourself. You can't look for the answers within. There's nothing in there that Malox can't help you with. Do you understand? The answers aren't there. This is the gospel. That, that, that you have a God, that, that there's a maker of your heart, the maker of your soul, and you were created not to turn in toward yourself, but, but like a flower to turn and, and orient yourself toward him, to open up toward the God who made you, to take your questions to the God who has the answers. He knows who you are. He knows what he's put inside of you. He knows what you were created to be. Everything you seek is in the God who made you. It's by grace that we are saved. And we talk about this salvation. It's this process of being turned away from ourselves so that I'm no longer a slave to my own thoughts and feelings and desires. I'm set free now to live out of a different source of strength, a different source of hope and faith and love. And it's not in here. It's not in me. It's in Christ. And once you turn toward Christ, once you turn back to God, all of a sudden you begin to know what life is meant to be. You begin to understand who you are. You begin to understand what your real name is. Sin is to be turned in upon yourself. It's, it's devastating. So how do we talk about this in the world? How do we use the word sin in a culture now that has more or less outlawed the word? If you try to talk about sin, and, and we have to talk about sin, if you talk about sin, they just accuse you of being a hater, of a bigot. It's not hateful to call sin, sin. But we need to figure out how to use these words, how to share this message of salvation. Let me give you three things, three points on, on using the language of sin in, in this world. The first one would simply be this. Go back one. Go back one. It, it's hard to talk about sin with people who don't think anything they do is particularly bad. I, I think in my lifetime, this is one of the primary ways our culture has changed. I think 40 years ago, especially in the Bible Belt, people sort of had this, this church background and they had this certain sort of formation where they sort of understood what sin was and, and, they, and they understood how they how they fallen short. Most everybody had a grandma or a grandpa or somebody who used to take in a church or used to read the Bible to them. And so when we went out into the world and we started with all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, people were prepared to hear that. They had a, a, a context for understanding that that they do not have now. You have to recognize that. They do not have that now. It is not that people have a church background, that they have a grandma who used to take them to church. Most people these days have, have grown up radically outside the church. They don't know what we're talking about. They don't know what we mean by our words. And so therefore, they will define our words for us. And they have defined the words we use as words that spew hate and, and, and some sort of uh, incredible uh, animosity toward the world that, that is not in our hearts. But understand, they don't know what we mean. So when we talk about sin, we sort of hit up against a brick wall because most of the people that you know these days, they really don't think of anything they do as being particularly bad. 
If you doubt that, take a look at our presidential candidates. Elected by democracy, which means these are the people we've chosen to lead us. They represent us, I would argue, very, very well. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are Clinton and Trump. Let's get used to it. That's the world we live in. We've chosen them. We've elected them. And one of them will lead us. You understand? So we live in this world where people don't necessarily relate to anything they do is particularly bad. Anything can be explained away. Anything that you do can be, can be erased. I mean, and, and, and on top of that, we sort of developed a culture where nobody can judge anybody. So nobody can confront anybody with wrongdoing. So no one is ever questioned and no one is ever held accountable. And so honestly, we live in this world where we're right and wrong and just our meanings that shift every single day. And so most people really don't walk around feeling like anything they do is bad. They really, really don't. So when you try to make them feel guilty, when you come at them, you know, preaching about all the things that you believe, you just sound weird. You sound weird. They don't feel like sinners, y'all, because they recycle. That's not a joke. That's not a joke. In our culture, recycling is a really high moral, uh, it's something to aspire to. If you don't recycle, you're destroying the planet. You understand? I mean, recycling is a really, I mean, there are people who really think they're, they're morally superior because they recycle. If you think I'm joking, you don't understand the world. I don't feel particularly bad about anything. We live in a shameless culture. It's shameless. I mean, if you've you've got sin or wrongdoing in your life, you can become a champion. You can become famous. I mean, you understand? We we, we celebrate. We'll give you a standing ovation these days just so you know that that we approve. and, and I'm just wanting you to understand that this is the, the culture that we're called to share the gospel in. So we don't run from it. We, we don't declare war against it. But, but like missionaries, we have to figure out how to, how to function, how to speak, how to carry the gospel of salvation of sinners into a culture where nobody thinks they sin. Wow. This is our challenge. And this is the world in which we are called to live life on mission. Now, the fact that they don't think of themselves as sinners, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. And honestly, you go back to Isaiah chapter 59. It's just a description of the world. A world where nobody cares about being fair and honest. Everything's based on lies. Activity filled with sin. Violence is the trademark. Feet running to do evil. Y'all understand that there's not anything new. There's nothing new about this. They don't think of themselves as sinners, but that doesn't mean that they don't experience separation from God on a daily basis in a thousand ways. And we have to be able to to, to speak into that. We we have to connect with sin as it affects their lives, as they experience a brokenness. And if we only think that sin makes you feel guilty, then that's what I'm saying. They don't feel guilty. They don't feel guilty. So if our whole approach to evangelism is trying to tell guilty people how to feel better about themselves, I'm telling you, we live in a culture where everybody feels great about themselves. They love them some them. You understand? Everybody loves themselves. They don't feel bad. But they're broken. Seriously broken. 
I like this verse 6 in the passage. It says, uh, the webs that they weave like spiders, their webs can't be made into clothing. And nothing they do is productive. It's this, this image of futility, trying to make yourself something to wear, trying to cover yourself with, with, with something made out of a spider's web. You, you get that image? You, you ever got a spider web on you? It's horrible, isn't it? If there's a spider web, I will walk through it always. And I spend the rest of the day, you know, just, you know, trying to get it off my face. It clings to me, but I can't see it. I I can't use it to cover myself, but at the same time, I, I can't, I can't get it off of me. And this is that... That picture of futility that sin brings. It's this life in which it's like being trying to build something, trying to cover yourself with, with, with a spider's web. It's like you work day after day after day. And as the scripture says, it's like you put all your money into a pocket with, with holes in it. In other words, nothing ever amounts to anything. Nothing is ever enough. Nothing you do is productive. You understand? That's our culture. That's where people live. That's what they're going to understand and relate to. We have a culture that has everything and is never satisfied. We have a culture that, that thrives to be entertained and yet is bored with every single moment of their lives. A world that, that friends one another on, on, on phones and, and, and pads, but at the same time, a world where people are trapped in the hamster wheel of horrible loneliness. Not a friend in the world. You understand? We experience sin. We experience the consequences of this separation in a thousand everyday ways. We've got to learn how to help people connect those dots. I'm just saying, if you're thinking they're going to feel guilty and you're going to appeal to that and start with Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short. I just think you're answering a question that they're not asking. And we need to learn to answer the questions that they're actually asking if we're going to win a hearing for the gospel. Y'all with me? All right, number two. We'll see if you're still with me in a minute. You want to use the language of sin? When talking about sin, start with your own. Some of the, the bad name that the church has earned in this culture, we deserve. We've done a lot of finger wagging, y'all. We have rather enjoyed pointing out people's sins, and we've done it for years, and, 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 and the people are done with us. We've loved to talk about sin, but we had this horrible habit of talking about only the sins for which we were not guilty. And, and, and if you don't know anything else, understand that that makes us only hypocrites, not good witnesses for Christ, but just hypocrites in the world. And the world can spot a hypocrite from a mile off in the fog. We don't always seem very good at it, but the world's good at it. And they recognize how we have made such major issues of things that really never mattered. We've called things sin that, that weren't necessarily sins. They're just things we didn't like. You understand? And we don't get to do that. A hundred years ago, Woodburn Baptist Church threw a man out of this church for dancing on Saturday night in downtown Woodburn. We threw him out for dancing. Now, some of you don't dance well. (laughs) And you may have been thrown out of some places for whatever move you were busting, but, you know, it may be ugly, but, but I don't know that we can call it sin. Just because you don't like dancing, it doesn't mean you can call it sin because the Bible doesn't call it sin. 
You don't get to call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. As a matter of fact, you don't get to be the judge at all. Now, now, now listen to me and be honest with me. When, when the Bible uses the language of sin, and when the Bible encourages us to use the language of sin, what does the Bible almost always call us to do? Confess. From cover to cover, the Bible is just filled with commands to confess our sins. You confess your sins. And at the same time, the Bible is filled with statements that forbid us from judging the sins of others. You are commanded to confess and you are forbidden from judging. It couldn't be more clear. And yet, in our lives, most of us confess very little and judge a whole lot. Understand, that puts us on the wrong side of this. You thought that you were going to be on the, on the side of the righteous getting to point the finger at the world, but you never get to do that. The Gospel of John says exactly whose job it is to convict the world of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's not your job. It is not your job. Now, I know some of you like doing it. You like nothing more than get up in the morning. You'll set the alarm early just so you can talk about everything wrong with the world and wrong with this culture. And you don't like gay people and you don't like, you don't like men that dress like women and you don't like people that dance and you're not sure about rock and roll music and on and on and on. Your list goes. But guess what? That's all beside the point. The problem in our culture is not that we got men who want to identify as women. The problem in our culture is not that we got men going in a women's restroom. Although it's nice. Y'all, they got potpourri in there. There are good reasons. I'm just saying men's room, man. They stank. Women's rooms are nice. The problem in our culture is typically not the thing you identify as a problem in the culture. The problem in the culture is that the culture doesn't know Jesus. Just don't know Jesus. And honestly, whether they're gay or straight or whether they dress like a man or dress like a woman, whether they play cards or listen to rock and roll music or whatever, lie, cheat, steal, understand? If all we do is go out and, and try to tell them that they need to behave better, I mean, what if we turned all the gay people straight? And what if we got all the crooked people to start being honest? And what if we made everybody good neighbors understand? They would be all the best behaved people in the world still going to hell. I mean, you can be on really good behavior and still go to hell. The problem is they don't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. So if we're going to talk about sin, let's go straight back to the Bible and let's deal with sin the way the Bible tells us to deal with sin. And it always sort of focuses like this. You deal with the giant plank of sin sticking out of your own eye. You deal with that first. And when you somehow get yourself wrapped up in a perfect package with a bow, then you can start working on the rest of us. In the meantime, you just stay busy with confessing your own. Understand? When you get yourself all put together, then you can start being the answer for the world. But until then, you're not the answer. You're just part of the problem. Confess your sins, Scripture says, and judge not, Scripture says. Y'all mad at me now. I'm talking about sin, start with your own. Well, Pastor Tim, what about in the Old Testament? The prophets go out and talk about sin. Yes, they do. Who are they talking to? 
God's people. They're talking to God's people. Jesus talked a lot about sin when he was talking to the religious people. He butted a lot of heads with the Pharisees and all the people who thought that they were righteous. They actually accused Jesus of being a friend with sinners. They thought he's a little too soft with the sinners. When people are lined up ready to stone the woman caught in adultery, what did Jesus say? Well, let the one without sin cast the first stone. In other words, yeah, after you're finished getting rid of the sin in your life, then you can work on the sin in hers. In the meantime, I think you've got enough to do. I think the world is waiting for a honest talk about sin. And if we're going to be honest about sin, then the sin I can talk most about from firsthand knowledge is my own. I mean, there are a lot of people in this world guilty of all kinds of stuff I don't do. And it would be really easy to focus on that because that feels good to me. It's delicious to talk about other people's sins. It's wonderful to judge people who sin in ways you don't, but that's not the way of Christ. Confess your sins. Scripture says your own sins and don't judge. We need to get back to that. I think if we as, as the people of Christ went out into the world and used the language of sin in this way, then suddenly we have a different kind of credibility. You know, I can talk about how Jesus sets people free from sin if I'm willing to talk about the sins from which I've been set free. If all I want to do is point fingers at others who need to be set free, I don't, I don't really think anybody's listening anymore to that. One more thing. You've got to love the lost to reach the lost. You've got to love the lost to reach the lost. It's, it's love. Christ's love compels us, you understand? It's the love of Jesus for Jesus, from Jesus. It's the love that Jesus gives me for the world. That's what compels me to live this life on mission. It's love. If we want to talk about how broken the world is, then we should do that with, with, with tears in our eyes. You understand, there should be something that breaks your heart about a world that is, that is going so quickly headlong into hell. If, if you can say that and not somehow have your heart broken, there's something profoundly wrong with your heart. If you're satisfied just to point out the sins of other people but never point them to the Savior, there's something profoundly wrong with your heart. And that is not the mission that we're called to live you're not called to point out the sins of the world. You are called to point the world to the Savior. Jesus will take care of their sin. He's the Savior. You're not. You're a sinner just like everybody else. Saved because of Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. I'm assuming that most of the people I'm talking to this morning and, and on uh, audio and video podcasts, I'm assuming that you're believers I know there may be some lost people who come to church at 8.30 on Sunday morning. Can't be too many. Uh, maybe some lost people who, you know, were looking for pornography and found me on, on the Internet. <laughs> Joke's on you. Um, I'm assuming that most of us are believers. So that means this. That means at some point in your life, somebody walked across the room or somehow otherwise came up beside you and introduced you to Jesus. 
They started a conversation. It may not have just been one conversation. It may have been several conversations. But one way or the other, they, they, they made the introduction. They, they used words that you listened to and you understood. And, and it turned you back toward God. I want you to think about that person. And I want you to go back to them. If they're still living, I want you to go back to them in this coming week or maybe before this day is over. Go back to them and thank them. Thank them for caring about you. Thank, thank them for caring enough to tell you the truth. Thank them for loving you. Thank them for introducing you to the Savior. That's how it starts. Somebody has to introduce you to Jesus. Now, before you can hear the good news, you got to hear the bad news first. You're a sinner, and your sin separates you from God, just like my sin has separated me from God. But because of Jesus, that sin is carried away. He who knew no sin became sin itself, that we might become the righteousness of God. Somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody made that introduction. When you go back to them, thank them. Because they have shown you the Savior. You and I are called to do the same thing for others. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, there is so much sin in the world. It's distressing. It's distressing, Lord, to live in a culture where people call wrong right and, 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 and bad good. It's distressing, Lord, to live in a culture where all of the rules have been turned upside down, where we celebrate, Lord, absolute wickedness, Lord, where we promote liars and elevate and elect those, Lord, who are so unfit to live. Lord, I don't know why it is our culture is so fallen except for the simple fact, Lord, that is a world full of sinners. Lord, maybe the greater mystery is why we uh, would expect anything different from the world, Lord. They are sinners turned in upon themselves. They do not know you, Lord Jesus. Lord, maybe we should just stop expecting them to live like believers, Lord, when they're not believers. Maybe we should stop just wagging our heads at their sin, Lord, and start wagging our tongues to tell them about the Savior. Lord, Jesus, help us to not be so content to sit here in church and talk about how the world's going to hell, Lord, when we are to live life on mission to see that they don't go to hell. We have a story to tell. Help us to find the words to tell it. But Lord, before we can ever explain to the world how there is forgiveness for sins, Lord, we have to be willing to acknowledge that uh, we ourselves are sinners, saved by grace, but still sinners. The same wickedness that is expressed in the world in so many thousands of ways is expressed in my own life in my own ways. I am a sinner. Maybe worst of all. But Jesus, you have saved me and forgiven me and changed me. I thank you, Lord, that I don't have to try to get to heaven based on my ability to be a good person. I'm not. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to try to get to heaven based on my ability 
not to sin because I can't not sin. Jesus, I thank you that because of your grace and goodness, Lord, you have made me to be what I am not. I am a sinner, Lord, but you have made me to be a saint. You have called me righteous because of Jesus. Lord, may I not forget where where I was when you found me, and may I be willing, Lord, to go back to those places to see that other people can be found by you and that they too may find salvation in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to remember what it is to be sinners and what it means to be saved. Help us, Lord, to care enough to tell those around us that they too, they too can find peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.